the podcast from Belmont Chapel in Exeter, sharing the story, living the life. For more information, go to belmontchapel.org.uk. I'm not a teacher. Um, Hello, my name's Alex. I'm a member here at Belmont, and it's my privilege today to continue our series of talks in John's Gospel called Come and See. Come and See was the invitation Jesus gave to Andrew and John to join him, and it's also the invitation to us as readers of John's Gospel to open our eyes and to see the glory of Jesus and be saved. Johnny last week took us through John 3, 1 to 21, uh, the one-to-one between Nicodemus and Jesus and our need to be born again. Today we're in the rest of chapter 3, then next week Johnny's back to help us with chapter 4 before we have a break from John's Gospel. If you've got a Bible, uh, be it on your phone or physical, uh, please keep it open. Uh, We'll put the verses on the screen too. Um, I'd like to split our reading into two parts. Firstly, what John and John say in verse 22 to 30, and then what John or John, depending on your translation, say in verse 31 onwards. Um, It'll make more sense when we get there. Uh, Let's just quickly pray before we read this. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you we get the chance to read it now freely and study it together. We pray that you would speak to us through it by your spirit and change us in Jesus name. Amen. Okay, let's read. After this, Jesus and his disciples went out into the country into the Judean countryside where he spent some time with them and baptized. Now John also was baptizing at Anon near Salim because there was plenty of water and people were coming and being baptized. This was before John was put in prison. An argument developed between some of John's disciples and a certain Jew over the matter of ceremonial washing. They came to John and said to him, Rabbi, that man who was with you on the other side of the Jordan, the one you testified about, look, he is baptizing and everyone is going to him. To this John replied, a person can receive only what is given them from heaven. You yourselves can testify that I said, I am not the Messiah but am sent ahead of him. The bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine and it is now complete. He must become greater. I must become less. Thank you. As long as it takes, as long as it takes, all night, through the night, As long as it takes, 36 hours, for as long as it will take, until tomorrow, there is no time limit. There is no question in my mind, however long it takes, forever. The Queen was in power for 70 years. I don't think there's any question how long we're going to wait. Those are all answers to the question, how long are you willing to wait for? Of course, to people in the queue. I, I was quite moved by some of the videos and interviews from the queue. Uh, so many people said paying their respects was, was the least they could do. And no one that I saw said, why won't people queue 30 hours to bow at my coffin? 
you know, why don't I get a state funeral? It's, it's wrong that I won't get 250,000 mourners queue to see me lying in state. No, no one said that. There, there was no jealousy of, of the queen. And, and that's right, isn't it? Because she was queen for 70 years. She deserves the credit she's due as a faithful monarch. And depending on your politics, there's something joyful about a faithful sovereign getting appropriate recognition and praise. So here's the scene in John 3. Uh, Jesus is in the countryside with his followers and his disciples are baptizing people. We don't actually find out until chapter 4. It's, it's his disciples doing the baptizing, not Jesus. Um, John the Baptist is also there with his followers. There's lots of water, so he's baptizing too. This is before John's put in prison. It says, verse 25, that an argument developed between some of John's disciples and a certain Jew over the matter of ceremonial washing. It literally means purification. We don't know any more than that about this argument. Uh, it's not mentioned again. John's disciples go to him and say, that man you testified about, Jesus, look, he's baptizing and everyone is going to him. John the Baptist and Jesus differed on some things. Uh, one difference that a Jew would notice is Jesus not conforming to some of the purification practices of the Pharisees that, that John obeyed. John's disciples seem upset or envious that Jesus is becoming more popular. More and more people are leaving John's group and going over to Jesus. So maybe the argument over purification was how does the baptism that Jesus' disciples offer differ from John's? Does theirs make people pure, meaning, meaning they can give up the purification rituals, and, and John's doesn't? Maybe John's followers were not just jealous. Maybe they were confused about the differences between Jesus and John. Maybe they doubted that Jesus was, really was the Lamb of God that John testified about. Uh, regardless, th this is how John sets them straight in verses 27 to 30. And we'll take some time to unpack this. He says, A person can receive only what is given them from heaven. You yourselves can testify that I said, I am not the Messiah, but I am sent ahead of him. The bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine and it is now complete. He must become greater. I must become less. Now, I don't know about you, but there's nothing jumping out at me that relates to an argument about ceremonial washing. He starts with this massive statement. A person can receive only what is given them from heaven. This is profound. He's saying the reason people are leaving him and going to Jesus is because God is giving them to Jesus. God sent John for this. This was God's plan. Gather people and then give them up. John doesn't take credit for his followers. They're a gift from God. He recognizes the sovereign work of God in people coming to Jesus through him. John says, I said I'm not the Messiah, but I'm sent ahead of him. The bride belongs to the bridegroom. What John seems to uh, say has nothing to do with purification, rather a picture of Jesus as the bridegroom and John as the friend of the bridegroom 
and what's happening in their ministries as the bride leaves John and goes to Jesus, the bridegroom. And John focuses especially on how this makes him feel, his heart's response to this. Uh, I recently watched The the Time Traveller's Wife. Uh, It's about a guy who travels through time and it's involuntary. He can't control it. So he's always disappearing and reappearing. Uh, Not wearing any clothes, but don't worry about that. Um, He he disappears on his wedding day. um, And his, his best friend there with the beard, he has to try and find him for his bride so they can be married. Uh, now, I'm not really spoiling anything here. The clue's in the, in the title. Um, the time traveler reappears. His best friend finds him, and the wedding can go ahead. And as the bride goes to the bridegroom, you can see there, the bridegroom's friend, he's full of joy. He's completed his mission. He got them to each other. John says the friend of the bridegroom sorry, the friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine and it is now complete. I want us to take a moment to admire John here uh, with with what he's saying. I I think we see a bit why Jesus said in Matthew 11, 11, John was the greatest person who ever lived. Unlike John's disciples, who seem envious of Jesus' ministry, John the Baptist is full of joy, like the joy of the best man at the wedding. He says, that full joy in me is complete. He then says something even more profound. He, Jesus, must become greater. I must become less. He must increase. I must decrease. Now, we've seen humility like this before from John, uh, John the Baptist. In, in John 1.20, he says, I am not the Messiah. John 1, 27, he's not worthy to tie Jesus' sandals. We've seen John's humility before, but in today's passage, we see something extra. We now also see his joy when Jesus is exalted. We see his emotions, and I'm sure to lots of people then, this wouldn't have made sense. His ministry was diminishing. He was losing followers, and his heart's response was abounding joy because Jesus was becoming greater. In the car park just, just before today, I saw some people from church that I knew. I thought, oh, great, it's nice that they're, they're coming to church today. And then I realized they weren't walking to church and they were going somewhere else, probably to another church. Abounding joy was how John felt about Jesus becoming greater, not necessarily about him losing followers. The voice of the bridegroom that calls to the wife is replacing the voice crying in the wilderness. And in a few months, John's voice will be silenced forever. And John's response to this diminishing, to his decreasing, is great joy because Jesus is increasing. He must become greater. I must become less. That's God's plan. It must be this way. The bridegroom rightly woos and wins his bride. He is exalted in the eyes of his bride. And as this happens, John's joy increases. And I don't know about you, but I find that incredibly challenging. Where do we find our deepest joy? It's okay to find joy in the blessings of this life that that God gives us, to receive them with thankfulness. Uh, But if we're to follow John's example, our greatest joy shouldn't be 
when we're lifted up, but when Jesus is lifted up according to God's purposes. That's what um, Nicodemus couldn't get his head around in, in earlier in the chapter. As Jesus said, so the Son of Man must be list, lifted up that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. Is our deepest joy when Jesus is exalted, regardless of our circumstances? He must become greater, I must become less. This verse is rich in meaning. It's not just God's plan to take away the sins of the world. It's also a model of discipleship for us all. And some of us might uh, need reminding of, can you, can you relate to this? Maybe when you became a Christian, you wanted to do great things for, for Jesus. You had enthusiasm to pursue G Jesus, to, to read your Bible, to pray. You were excited. You wanted to make a difference in the world. Now you've been a Christian for a while. You wanted to do great things for God through ministry, through your career, through mission, through family. But a spanner's been thrown in the mix, like ill health or lockdown, or recession. For some, that's brought you closer to Jesus and made you rely on him, praise God. But for others, maybe it's made you rely on yourself more, to make yourself more resilient and stronger. Those setbacks have meant those old disciplines of time with Jesus feel a bit harder now. You're still here in church, you're still engaged, you're working hard to be a good Christian. You still want to do great things for God. But your internal motivation to connect with Jesus and rely on him has faded a bit. If that's you this morning, I want you to take a note of John. Like John, we shouldn't primarily want to do great things for Jesus. Rather, we should simply want Jesus to become great even if that means us becoming less. That could mean people going to a different church. That could mean you know, caring for long-term sick, uh, for, for, sorry, a long-term sick relative, instead of pioneering a successful ministry. I don't know, what gives Jesus more glory? You might have great dreams, uh, you know, even building uh, successful uh, you know, even building successful dreams. You might have built something great. I'm not saying you'd need to stop that, but maybe you sense you should offer that up to Jesus and say, thy will be done, not my will be done. Thy kingdom come, not my kingdom come. How can Jesus become greater and I become less? John's ministry, which had been vibrant, was diminishing. He would soon be imprisoned and then beheaded at the wish of a dancing girl. John became less to a staggering degree. They put his head on a platter. But his joy is complete because Jesus is glorified. I've been struggling to get my head around this and I found it hard to explain. If that was the mission statement for your life, Jesus must become greater, I must become less. What does that look like for you and me? For those small decisions we, we make every day, asking throughout the week, how can Jesus become greater and I become less? 
Asking that could mean we, we talk to God more. It could impact big decisions and plans for your life. But as scary as that sounds, the result is actually maximum joy, according to John. John says, Jesus is becoming greater, I'm becoming less, and I'm full of joy. My joy is complete. Is your deepest joy complete when glory rightly goes to the sovereign? When Jesus is lifted higher and we bow down lower? What does a life like that look like? I can think of people in this church for whom I can see that they, they've put that into practice. Um, thinking further afield, maybe someone like Francis Chan. He built a mega church in the US, uh, very successful, sold loads of books. Uh, he became great, but then he decided to, to leave that church, gave away loads of money, and went to work with the poor in Hong Kong. Jesus must increase, I must decrease. It's, it's challenging, isn't it? Something to pray about. Anyway, what does this have to do with an argument about ceremonial cleansing? Uh, well, this may be a bit of a stretch. You, you decide. Um, what does the bridegroom do for the bride? Ephesians 5, 25 to 27. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any blemish, but holy and blameless. Jesus isn't just the sacrificial lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He's also the bridegroom who gives himself up for his bride to cleanse her and make her holy. John, the gospel writer, actually puts these two pictures of Jesus together in Revelation 21.9. Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. Jesus is the lamb. Jesus is the bridegroom. Jesus is glorious, and he is the most important person in your life. Um, we'll briefly look at why that is to finish. Uh, this brings us back to the second part of our passage, um, verses 31 to 36. Let's read it. The one who comes from above is above all. The one who is from the earth belongs to the earth and speaks as one from the earth. The one who comes from heaven is above all. He testifies to what he has seen and heard, but no one accepts his testimony. Whoever has accepted it has certified that God is truthful. For the one whom God has sent speaks the words of God. For God gives the spirit without limit. The father loves the son and has placed everything in his hands. Whoever believes in the son has eternal life. But whoever rejects the son will not see life. For God's wrath remains on them. Uh, some translations close the speech marks at verse 30. Some continue to verse 36. We don't know if this is still John the Baptist speaking or just John the Gospel writer. Um, I think it's the latter, but I don't think it really matters. Let, let's just call him John. Um, to close, I'll, I want to simply list some of the magnificent things about Jesus that John mentions in these verses. Jesus is described as from heaven, from above, in contrast to John and, and every other person in history who is from the earth. 
Jesus is described as above all, meaning he's superior to all. He rules all. Verse 35, he holds the galaxies in his hands. And from that position, he speaks. He testifies about things from heaven, unlike all others who can only speak of things from earth. To hear Jesus is to hear God. Verse 34, God sent him. He speaks the words of God because Jesus has an unlimited measure of the Spirit. God has given him the Spirit without limit, unlike us who only receive a measure of the Spirit in this life. There are two present tenses in verse 34 and 35. The Father is always giving the Son the Spirit without measure, and the Father is always loving the Son. God the Father imparts and bestows his Spirit on his Son infinitely, as fully as the Spirit can be known and enjoyed. And the Father loves the Son eternally, without restraint, with all that he is. This shows us something of the profound mystery and loveliness of the Trinity. Uh, Verse 32 is a bit confusing as it says, uh, no one accepts his testimony, uh, because people do. Um, But I think what this is, uh, I think this is mirroring what Jesus said earlier in the chapter. uh, No one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. Similarly, no one accepts Jesus' testimony unless they are born again. These words in verses 31 to 36 are written to lift Jesus up so we see his glory and magnificence. So we're born again and are saved from condemnation. That's what's at stake here. That's why Jesus is the most important person in your life because our response to him takes us down one of two paths. Verse 36 is, is a frightening verse as it holds out those two paths plainly, life or wrath. Uh, we don't talk about uh, wrath much in, in church. It's not a fun subject. It's, it's God's righteous punishment and condemnation of sin and evil. God's wrath is just and pure and holy and terrifying. And sadly, for some people, it, it's hanging over them. Verse 33, whoever accepts Jesus' testimony has certified that God is truthful. If you reject Jesus, this says you're effectively calling God a liar. One of the worst things about being a Christian is friends and family rejecting Jesus. But one of the best things is when people accept Jesus, like on the Alpha Course. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. The purpose of John's gospel is that as you read it, you see Jesus. You see he's from heaven. He's above all. He rules and speaks as God. He's come to save sinners, to offer forgiveness. This is written so we come and see and say yes to Jesus. In doing so, we're declaring God is truthful and are given eternal life. By believing in Jesus, we're united to him by faith. So he takes our punishment. His righteousness becomes our righteousness. There is now no wrath, no condemnation, and we're accepted forever into God's loving family. Samuel's going to lead us in a time of communion now, uh, where we'll just get a bit more time to, to reflect on what it cost Jesus to save us.